ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. you're listening to where the big boys play i'm here with uh with chad how are you chad doing pretty good i've already warned parv that i was uh up late last night so uh just a disclosure that i may sound a little groggy today but i'm gonna give my best so what what were you doing i, I got a message uh from at like 7 a.m my time saying um you know and we were scheduled i think to start recording at one and uh, you sent me a message saying that you'd uh, that you'd gone out to a concert and only just got back. So uh, how many hours sleep are you going on, Chad? <laughs> uh, about four and a half hours. Yesterday was kind of one of them crazy days where I uh, originally didn't think anything was going to happen and then ended up going to the concert, eating some supper afterwards. So it was just uh, a lot of unexpected stuff happening. See a lot of fun, though. See anything good? Yeah, um, it's probably a band that most people would hate, but uh, I enjoyed them. It's kind of like a jam band. I don't know if you're familiar with them. A, a jam band, did you say? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I kind of know what you mean. Okay. Um, uh, how was your Christmas? It was pretty good. I didn't do a lot. This is the uh, first Christmas that uh, me and my wife have shared in our house, um, so that was nice that we uh, were able to decorate our house. Uh, how was yours? I know you said you celebrate that also. Yeah, we, uh, well, I, I spent it at my, uh, at my wife's uh, place, and, um, well, th- there won't be any Dusty Rhodes weight jokes for me this uh, this week, because I probably put on, uh, you know, 10 pounds or something. Uh, <laughs> I've done a lot of eating. I've just sat in that. I probably ate, um, you know, about six blocks of cheese, God knows how much turkey, etc. So um, I'm pretty bloated at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, in fact, I did. I got a uh, a wrestling related gift. I got um, the WWF um, video uh, review book that um, that was posted uh, on. It's called, you know the Coliseum uh, video review guidebook. Yep. Uh, it's pretty thick, actually. It's pretty extensive. Like I, I spent quite a while reading it, and I'm not, I'm not that far into it. Um, and also, just before Christmas, I went on a little, um, I I went on a little splurge and bought a pile of wrestling books. You know, the National Wrestling Alliance one, the um, the uh, Wrestling uh, Hall of Fame books. You know, the tag teams, the heels, the ones by Greg okay. Oliver. Um, so I've been reading some of those as well. So it's pretty, int- you know, pretty good stuff. But yeah, good Christmas. And is uh, that the uh the uh, NWA book is that the one by uh, I'm trying to think of his name Scott Hornbaker or Tim yeah, Hornbaker it, maybe it, it is that one yeah um, have you read any of that because I know based on what I've heard before like that book kind of fascinates me because I really like like oral histories mm-hmm. uh, in literature but uh, I know a lot of people say it's kind of dense 
Well, I haven't started reading it yet. Um, and of all of the books I've got, it's the one that's uh, slightly off-putting when you look at it. It looks like a proper tome, you know. Um, so I've just been, like, the other ones are much easier to dip in and out of. But this one is like, um, it's a story from start to finish. Um, and it's, I, I think it's sold on this idea that the NWA was a little like a kind of, um, you know, a bit like the Mafia. Uh, that they had basically all of pro wrestling on lockdown. And it's, uh, it's telling that story. So I haven't had a look at it yet, but I will get around to reading it at some point. Um, okay. Uh, pr probably, uh, yeah, probably in that long, you know, distant time when I'll get around to watching TNT and all the other things that I, uh, <laughs> that I say I'm going to do. Um, so to, just before we start today, uh, I, at the start of the last show, I said, uh, you know, give us some comments. Uh, let me know, uh, you know, that you're listening to the show. And we got quite a few, uh, there are quite a few comments. Um, so I thought we'd deal with these uh just as we start off, now I know Chad that you have an aversion to this, right? You don't like uh, you don't like listening to shows when they excessively talk about uh, listeners' comments, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just think sometimes I know there's some shows where uh, it just seems like the comments kind of take up at least 25 to 30 percent of the show, yeah. and especially uh, just. Personally, in the review of the show, it, it either seems like it's a lot of the same stuff repeated yeah. or uh, that's kind of the time where I, I zone out. So, so that's, that's just a personal opinion. So I'm, I'm going uh, to um, just kind of give a couple of uh, things here, especially if people have got something different to say. Okay. So um, uh, let, me, let me quickly have a look. Well, this is from uh, Biggest of the Bubbers. Uh, he sent this. He said, I discovered this uh, listening to the Clash cast with Jason Mann through the Wrestlespective. So, uh, good job we did the joint show there. Um, and he said, This is a good idea because WCW doesn't get enough love. Uh, and then he asked uh, a couple of questions about where we get the footage. Uh, so, th thanks from that biggest of the bubbers. And I mainly read that out because um, I think that's a direct. Um, he's having a go at you there, Chad. Because, uh, we, we, you know, you have the big, uh, the big bubber connection. Um, then we have one from Mike R saying that he's been listening to the show for quite some time and he found it through, uh, the F4W online message board. Uh, you must have posted that, uh, Chad, cause I, I've never been on there. Uh, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the wrestling observer message board. Um, which when we first started up, I had my subscription, uh, my subscription has lagged to the observer, but, uh. I'm thinking about re-upping, so uh, I'll probably be posting in there that thread again. So, so Mike R has a has a note about a Clash Two show uh, about Lionel Alzado. He says that Alzado is a very, very good defensive player, maybe not a Hall of Fame level player, but just below it. And he was one of the first American athletes to admit to using steroids, and blamed the uh, the brain tumor that led to his death on heavy steroid use. So, a, a bit of background on Lionel Alzado there. Um, and we have, uh, hold on a second, uh, our old mate's, uh, Edison Cheapy, also known as, uh, what's his name, uh, uh J James Fabiano. Right. Um, he, he, uh, he's been catching up on, uh, on some of our uh, previous shows, and he's just listened through the, uh, the Clash 1 show, and he, uh, has a bit of information about Nikita Koloff here. He says that his wife died in 1989, um, 
so obviously he'd stick around through 88 um, and he had a reunion with himself and Ivan as faces then he left and Junkyard Dog team with Ivan at Starcade. so a, li a little bit of spoilers here um, he says his timeline is a bit off from Andy and Nikita's history uh, he just followed it from the Aptomags um, but she could have taken a turn for the worse near the end of 88 which is why Nikita left so um, I, I think we were speculating around on the with, with me and Jason were saying that uh, uh, you know it was around this time that Nikita lost his uh, wife so it could you know account for the fact that he um, goes pretty shitty um, but that it didn't actually happen until a bit later so um, it doesn't quite account for steep downturn in his uh, in his work he does say that he turns up in AWA for a while in 89 um, and that's all that's all he says there and then what else do we have um, and then on the PWO uh, wrestling uh, boards which uh, which I'm aware for uh, an absolute newcomer um, uh, maybe you know it's quite it's not the easiest of communities to crack uh, chair would you uh, say that's true <laughs> uh, I mean I, I would just say that for the pro wrestling only message board um, it's it's kind of the type of thing where uh, you're going to hear some opinions there that even on a message board like uh, like the Wrestling Observer message board, uh, most most people on the Wrestling Observer message board think that both Shawn Michaels and Kurt Angle are uh, two great wrestlers, for example. On the uh, Pro Wrestling Only message board, uh, certainly in regards to Angle, uh, that opinion won't prevail, and Michaels is, most people, I would say, on that message board, see Michaels' peak as uh, his tag team days, actually. Yeah. Uh, so there's just, but but the one thing that I do respect on the pro wrestling only message board, and it is my favorite message board, yeah. wrestling-wise, is the fact that they are able to break it down uh, yeah. and give some examples of why uh, why they feel that way. I mean, and at the end of the day, you may just have to say, I like this, you like that, but uh, but uh, they are providing examples. They're not just saying, you know, Angle sucks or Shawn Michaels sucks to kind of be a, a contrarian internet wrestling fan. They are given examples of why they feel that way. People always give their reasons, um, but it's one board where basically, if you're not going to put the work in, if you if you're not prepared to write, you know, <laughs> uh, 500 word posts explaining exactly what you're talk what you're talking about, it can be a little bit difficult. And I noticed our buddy Solomon got into a bit of a back and forth about Bruiser Brody recently. Um, and uh, you know, there's this long thread about whether Bru Bruiser Brody's any good, and the standard consensus on pro wrestling only, uh, probably unlike I'd say, you know, 80% of uh, old school wrestling boards out there, is that um, Brody sucked, right? Most people think that Brody wasn't very good, and um, I think the received opinion uh, from uh, you know fans back in the day is that you know Brody was. Uh, kind of a legend, you know, on par with a Stan Hansen or something. So um, it's difficult when somebody comes with a, a set of received opinions and, um, you know, you've got to be prepared for those sort of views to be questioned. 
And anyway, uh, th these are the uh, these are the comments uh, from Pro Wrestling Only. Uh, Shu um, uh, was talking about our Clash show, and he was basically complaining that uh, we talked too much about the commercials, which was pretty much my fault. <laughs> so then there's a, a little bit of talk about whether we um, whether we should talk about commercials or not. Um, then uh, Solomon actually uh, crops up with a comment himself. Um, and he says, uh, regarding Lyle Alzado, uh, he was pretty much a household name in the late 70s and mid 80s um, as a DTDE, uh, uh, what's that, defensive DTDE? Any idea? Uh, uh, probably defensive and. Um, uh, let me look at that. For the Orange Crush defense of the Denver Broncos. Um, then he w uh, they went to the Super Bowl 12 against Dallas. Uh, he also played for the cardiac Brian Sipe-led uh, Cleveland Browns. Uh, Solomon might as well be talking uh, Dutch here. For <laughs> all this makes sense to me. Um, then they went to the playoffs in 1980. Um, he was on uh, the Super Bowl uh, champion Los Angeles Raiders team of uh, 83. And he was known for having a real short temper uh, and playing with a vicious mean streak. He had some incidents off the field with his, uh, where his temper revealed himself. And he later admitted to steroid use and ended up getting brain cancer after his career was over. He blamed the steroids for the cancer. And he even had a famous appearer on the Arsenio Sh Hall show uh, where he was all shriveled up and talked about his steroid use. Uh, and he uh, ended up dying shortly after. So uh, I think that's corroborating what uh, Fabiano was saying. Um, and then, uh, well, there's, there's a lot more uh, talk, but I'm kind of with you here, Chad, that, you know, we don't want comments to go on for 20 minutes or so. Um, but, yeah, I keep on uh, keep on letting us know what you know of the show, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll pick, out some, um, pick out some things to read out. <laughs> um, right, and just real quickly, that is defensive tackle, defensive van, uh, which is the position he played. Which I don't know if you've ever seen American football, but if on the defense, that would be uh, usually the people that on the defensive side will be the ones closest to the ball before yeah. it's hiked or your uh, defensive they're, ends. They're the big guys at the front who beat people up, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. They will go against the offensive line, to, uh, try to sack the quarterback, some of them. Uh, that. Um. Yeah, the, the the last thing I'll say about comments, you 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 did say on there that you uh, that last uh, last week you basically um, made a little mistake about the uh, the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight's having a match on this show, and it's actually as we'll see the um, the Fantastics who have a match against the Midnight Express, um, and I also uh, as we were going out, I said we'd have some special guests on uh, for the Great American Bash show, but. Those special guests will actually be doing the Starcade show, um, which was a decision that we took between now and then. Okay, so uh, let's get on. Uh, Great American Bash 88. Looking forward to this one. Um, I've, uh, I've been looking at the wrestling uh, observers uh, uh, from uh, around this time, and there are, there are some um, kind of major news pieces that happen. So I, I thought we'd go through these before we get to the Bash show. Um, the, uh, the big piece of news, uh, this is from the June 27th newsletter, is that the powers of pain have jumped ship to the WWF. Now, can you take a guess, Chad, about why the powers of pain jumped ship at this point? 
Um, I actually have no idea. I'm kind of <laughs> curious now. <laughs> the story is is that they wanted out before they had to work some scaffold matches with the Row Warriors. They were scheduled to have about a dozen scaffold matches with the Row Warriors in the autumn, in the fall, basically. Um, and uh, that that was the reason they gave that they, you know the warlord being 325 pounds didn't want to take the bump. Um, so they left. So <laughs> there we are. Uh, that's a really bizarre reason, I think, for leaving. Um, Pretty bizarre, but uh, actually uh, makes more sense than kind of some of the reasons that were racing through my head when you asked <laughs> um, Yeah, and he, he talks about how it's a bit weird that um, the WF are going to use them as faces. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I, I have to say, I think um, the uh, the double heel turn involving Mr. Fuji is one of the most confusing heel turns. I think it's from uh, Survivor Series 88 um, off the top of my head and uh, yeah, I did, that's one of my least favourite turns. Um, I think it's Demolition and Powers of Pain. Demolition turn face and uh, Powers of Pain turn heel uh, with the involvement of Fuji. Um, anyway, uh, on air, um, Paul Jones and the Row Warriors used the Heat Was Too Hot line uh, explaining where the powers of pain left and effectively buried them on air, um, which is often what was done. You know, when when somebody just kind of leaves suddenly, they um, always say, "Well, you know, this is basically where the big boys play," and uh, they were scared and ran off. So, um, so they were going to be replaced. Their kind of space in the car was going to be replaced by a new tag team, the New Russians, um, which is Ivan Koloff with a, yet another partner, the Russian Assassin. Um, who apparently is a guy called Angel of Death, Dave Sheldon. Um, any experience of watching him before? I've, I've watched him a little bit. Uh, he kind of came in um, in 86, uh, 87 UWF. Uh, he kind of came in as a member of Skandarak Bars Group there. Uh, not very favorable opinions of what I remembered from him. Yeah, well, he just seemed like a big guy in a mask on this show. Um, uh, he also says that uh, Crockett have cleared 9.4 million homes for the Great American Bash uh, show. Um, Meltzer says that with the interest in uh, Ric Flair versus Lex Luger very high, this should be a success, especially um, as it's running unopposed by the WWF. Um, he says about 2.6 million people saw the main event from the Clash 2 show. Um, and that Braves versus Giants uh, game that we mentioned only got 1.5 million uh, viewers. So um, wrestling was actually outdrawing um, uh, Braves versus Giants. What's that? I'm, I'm football, right? No, that no, was base, base, uh, baseball. 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 Yeah. yeah. So wrestling's outdrawing baseball in uh, July, uh, June '88. Uh, then from the July 4th uh, newsletter, he says that the sale of NWA to Turner has become a distinct possibility, that the deal should be uh, finalised by the end of July. Um, the only problem is that David Crockett has been an obstacle, and both he and Francis have, uh, have reservations, but Jim Crockett Jr. is basically pushing ahead with the sale. Um, and he says that the Great American Bash 88 uh, should easily be the biggest money non WWF wrestling card in history. He says fans are convinced um, that this is the end for Ric Flair, which is the major selling point. Um, and uh, d d talking about Wrestling Observer subscriptions, 
he, uh, he mentions here that um, it's, it's time for renewal and that it's five dollars for four issues, ten dollars for eight, twenty for sixteen, thirty for twenty-four, and fifty for forty. Um, I think uh, five dollars for four issues is pretty steep in 1988. It's quite a lot of money. How much? Uh, how much is the uh, Observer nowadays? Well, it's uh, I have just the online portion, mm-hmm. uh, so it's about ten ninety-nine a month uh, for the. Uh, I mainly read the Observer and the podcast when I subscribe to it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you, stuff was that ex- was pretty expensive there. I guess uh, around that time, I guess maybe the postage and handling and the work being done. Yeah. Um, that's kind of one of them things that hasn't the price uh, hasn't inflated with time. It may have actually it probably has deflated. Yeah. Uh, the equivalent of it. His running costs are probably cheaper now than they were back in 1988. Sure. Um, so, July 11th newsletter, Adrian, Adrian Adonis died in that um, infamous car crash uh, around this time. Uh, so we, we have a bit of a obituary for him there. He says that uh, Great American Bash 88 should be the fourth biggest money card in history behind WrestleMania 3 and 4 and Survivor Series 87. Over 10 million homes are cleared now to watch... Uh, Great American Bash 88. He also says that Bash draw drew well. Uh, several shows made over $100,000 uh, with the gate. And uh, more update on, about the sale to Turner. It's been put on ice now because David Crockett is against the sale. <laughs> also, um, there's a bit of uh, behind-the-scenes machinations here with Ole Anderson trying to become a key player uh, in the deal, either by breaking away and forming a new company with David Crockett or making a deal with Turner himself, um, which would uh, mean that he didn't need to make a deal with Crockett. Obviously, neither of those things happened. Um, July 18th, um, he... uh, uh, What happens here? This is actually the show where he reviews the Great American Bash cards. We'll get onto that later. But um, I'll just uh, mention the actual buy rates uh, before we start. Um, From the July 25th uh, newsletter, this is actually... Um, right when Bruiser Brody was killed in Puerto Rico, so a huge amount of this and the next newsletter are devoted to Brody. Um, but he said there's conflicting um, reports on how well Great American Bash did, pay-per-view-wise. It's either a 1.9 or a 4% um, buy rate. He says that it drew 4s and 5s in the traditional Crockett markets, Georgia, Florida, Texas, kind of old Mid-South region, for example, but only one down the West Coast, um, which would be disappointing. The maximum it could have made is $6 million, the minimum $3 million. And he says $6 million would be really good, $3 million would be really bad. Um, and then in the next newsletter, the August the 1st one, he clarifies that um, it was actually around $6 million that they made, uh, which is about 400 buys, um, works out as 4% nationwide which means that all carriers will now take Starcade, which is obviously a good news. So this show was a success for Crockett. Um, uh, but he does break it down. He says that even though they drew really well in the Carolinas and the Southeast, where they even beat WrestleMania, um, they drew badly in LA, 1.5%. And in New York, they were only 22 But that's kind of what you would expect, I think. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the reason I uh, wanted to go through that is that I think it shows that, you know, 
Crockett wasn't in a dire straits around the time this Turner deal was happening. I think the the wisdom is that you know it'd been run into the ground and uh, Turner bought the company when it was on its knees. I don't think like from reading this that doesn't seem to be the case to me, Chad. You're the accountant. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree with that. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, the buy right the buy rates uh, seemed to be kind of par of the course of uh, what you would expect, so... Yeah, I mean, it's not like they were losing money hand over fist, like, um, you know, WCW in 92 or something like that. Right, even, I mean, business-wise, from 1990, why I uh, really liked the in-ring product from what I've seen. Uh, the, the, uh, the gates at the houses just weren't doing uh, very good business at all, so I would say even then, now uh, in 88, they were doing better business overall. So, let's go on to the actual show then. We're in the Baltimore Arena. Um, it's July the 10th that this uh, show happened. Um, Great American Bash 88, the price for freedom. So, th they were still doing the tour, but this is, um, they decided that this year they were just going to feature one show. It was going to be one big pay-per-view show, um, and it was this one from Baltimore. Uh, naturally, uh, ring announcer is Gary Michael Capetta, because as we know, Tom Miller doesn't go outside of Greensboro. Um, and uh, I watched the um, WF 24-7 uh, version, and from what I understand, the VHS version of this um, is heavily clipped down. Um, I saw the reviews of uh, Matt Petticord, our buddy there at PDR, um, wrestling, and also I had a look at an old Scott Keith review, and they clearly did the VHS version, and apparently that that's really badly clipped. So, if you are going to watch the show, make sure you watch the full version because um, there's a couple of matches here that you really need to see in full. Our first match is uh, Sting and Nikita Koloff versus Arn and Tully uh, for the world uh, tag titles. Our commentators are Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. So, uh, as we start off here, the faces uh, obviously have their uh, shine uh, sequence. Um, Sting rolls a tully up for a, an early two count. We get a drop kick. Um, Arn is uh, kind of walking outside, and Sting does a flying body press over the top rope uh, onto Tarn on, Arn on the outside, which is a pretty, um, you know, pretty good uh, spot. Nikita Koloff comes in and works on uh, Arn's arm. Um, Ross, uh, throughout this, praises the horsemen for their positive attitude, um, and he talks about how J.J. Dillon has instilled this uh, attitude in them. Um, <laughs> he also talks about how there was a closed-door breakfast meeting this morning, um, where all four horsemen, who were defending each of their titles, uh, had a meeting to discuss strategy. <laughs> I wonder what was uh, actually discussed at that meeting, if it took place. <laughs> um, Nikita uh, Koloff uh, nails arm with a sickle, um, and uh, and he gets Tully with a sickle as well. Um, it, that gets a two count. Um, Arn uh, gets a foot on the rope. Sting comes in. Arn ends, turns the momentum with uh, with a knee to Sting's gut and a sleeper hold. Shivani notes that he's never seen Arn do a sleeper before. Um, Sting uh, gets back on top. He drop kicks both of the heels. Tully comes in. Um, takes a pair of arm drags. Nikita comes back in and works on Tully's arm. 
uh, we get a series of near falls. Sting comes back in. The Horseman uh, can't seem to really get any offense going at all in this match. It's been all the faces so far. Um, and uh, I've just got a note here that this is some uh, pretty shitty arm work from Nikita Koloff. It's really bad. Um, and uh, Sting's isn't much better either. Um, I think it's quite odd to see a heel in peril segment go on for this long in a, in a Crockett tag match. We get a we get a hot tag to Arn. Um, things slow down a bit. Um, we get a leg takedown by Nikita. Half Nelson on Arn, then a full Nelson. Uh, Arn kicks uh, Nikita in the knee, um, which uh, is really your transition. About 15 minutes in, he tags uh, Tully in, who targets that knee. But Nikita comes back with a sickle uh, over the top rope, um, and uh, that's no DQ. Uh, we're told that the momentum takes uh, Tully over. Um, <laughs> we get that a few times tonight, where whenever the getting over the top rope spot that isn't a DQ, it's, um, it's called momentum. I've never quite understood what they mean exactly. Um, uh, we get a suplex back in uh, from Nikita. Um, the count is broken by Dylan. Um, Nikita Koloff goes um, after him and uh, blows his shoulder on the post. <clears throat> Arn picks him up and rams him back into the post. We get a pump handle slam by Arn, which is an old uh, Ole Anderson move. Jim Ross is uh, really talking up Arn on commentary as being uh, tougher than Gene Anderson. We get a hammerlock uh, from Arn. Uh, Nikita is um, doing some really stupid shit psych-up moves at this point. He's poking out his tongue and making uh, all sorts of noises. Um, Arn uh, nails the DDT um, for a two-count. Uh, Tully comes in, he targets the injured arm, uh, tags in and out now, but Nikita gets uh, hit the knees up as Arn comes um, from the second rope. We get a hot tag to Sting, who gorilla presses uh, Tully. Um, he gets a bulldog on Arn. We get an atomic drop uh, and a drop kick on Tully. A sleeper on Arn now from Sting. Uh, Arn tags uh, Tully in, who uh, goes for a sunset flip from the top rope, but is blocked. Um, there's 30 seconds left in this match. We get a stinger splash on Tully, Scorpion Deathlock, as the time limit draw come, and the faces think that they've won the belts. Um, now, I didn't like this match much, but uh, Chad, what do you think? I, I really like this match. <laughs> All right. I, th I think this one is uh, kind of lost uh, classic because I do think most people have seen the uh, clip version. Um, I, I, it, it's a match that does have a lot of problems. Uh, the, uh, hill in peril sequence does go on for a long while. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I, I, I thought the, uh, arm work was a lot better than you gave it credit for. I mean, I, th I think definitely in this match, Nikita is the worst person by far. Yeah. Uh, it, it's pretty obvious to me that Nikita has the least heat and uh, has the worst work. But he, even in the arm sequences, uh, you know, he did do some things to keep it going along, like trying to pin. Uh, I know there's a sequence where he's trying to pin Tully to the mat and Tully has to keep kind of bridging out of it. Uh, and it, it looks like a pretty good grapple, actually. Um, and shows a lot of struggle. Um, so I, I, I think I did like that section a lot more. I thought the splash from Sting 
uh, in the early going was just an incredible spot. The crowd was going nuts. Uh, the crowd was really hot throughout this mm-hmm. whole match. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then when Nikita got his arm posted up against the guardrail, that created a good uh, sense of heat, and the horsemen were able to kind of do their thing and uh, work him over a little bit, which led to the hot finish. Uh, I, th- I thought the finish was was hot. The actual finish result mm-hmm. uh, was stupid. But uh, that's kind of a reoccurring theme that we'll see tonight. But uh, as an overall match, I thought this was really good. Oh, dear. This, this, I think this is the first time we have a real, real disagreement on our hands, uh, Chad, because I, I didn't like this match at all. I thought uh, Nikita sucked hard, like really hard. Um, the heels got too little in. Um, I thought the heel in the peril segment went on way too long and was basically a waste of time. Um, in the context of the overall match. Um, the stretch sequence on Nikita was too short, and uh, all in all, I, I just think Nikita did enough to bring this match down for me. I really, like, from all the p- bad Nikita performances we've seen, this is the one where he annoyed me the most, because he was just like, I don't know, I, I didn't like anything he did, did in this match, and when he was sticking his tongue out and shouting, and I don't know, I just hated him. <laughs> um, I will say that Sting was pretty over, and that he, obviously, everything that he did in the match was quite good. Um, but there was just too much. Uh, that kind of heel and peril segment goes on seemingly forever. Like, I was actively bored during some of that arm, arm work. Um, so, yeah. We're gonna have yeah, to... I, mean, I mean, I think I think definitely it's a match where uh, I, I, I can definitely, somebody like yourself that really loves uh, heels and the way heels work and like their dominating sections. Yeah. Um, I think that's why a, a long uh, heel in peril segment could be off putting to mm-hmm. someone like yourself. Yeah. And uh, I'll freely admit that I would at best call Nikita adequate in this match. And I did have a lot of problem with the, uh, it, it kind of reminded me of the Final Conflict match. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember how long that Heal in Peril segment was. That was kind of what we got here, but I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, that match was over 30 minutes. This was a 20-minute draw, um, so that seemed to help it a little bit. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, in the in the Final Conflict, there was kind of a reason. You know, um, I think it's Don, Don Kirk. Knodel takes the brunt of that beating, but there's there's a there's a kind of feeling in that match that by the end both teams are completely you know they've been through an actual war. Um, whereas here, the like I don't think that the healing peril segment actually contributed anything to the match. Like we don't really you know I I mean I guess the story here is that the Sting and uh, Nikita have got the champion's number. And that if this match had gone, you know, 31 minutes, they would have won the belts. I, I guess that's what they were trying to say. Um, but for my liking, I'd, I'd like the heels to get, um, especially as uh, Jim Ross on commentary is really putting over on and Tully is one of the great teams at this point. Um, I think they needed to get more in um, within the within the 20 minutes. Um, yeah, it was 20 minutes, not 30. Um they needed to get more in to get that over that this is actually a really good team because from from my point of view the, the faces were just they just dominated this match um 
And like I like I've said before, I don't think Nikita or Sting at this point have got enough to do when they're on top um, to keep things going. But I'd, I'm, I'll I'll agree to differ with you on this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not going to take it as a uh, like an all-time classic match, but uh, as far as the match that I think is very interesting uh, from a structure standpoint. I thought it definitely made Sting look like a star. Um, I mean, I mean, besides the finish, again, I think the finish is stupid, and that is where Nikita annoyed me the most, actually, when he grabs the belt and raises <laughs> his hand like he can't understand what uh, Gary Michael Capetta just announced, that it was a time limit draw. Yeah. Uh, that, that does not do anybody any favors um, with that, but... Uh, like I said before, that's kind of a reoccurring theme. But uh, and we'd also be kind of remiss tonight, kind of give a, uh, I guess a, a eulogy of sorts to Arn and Tully because this is the uh, last time as a team we will see them. Really? They, they, they don't have a, they don't have any matches on the upcoming clashes. No, I don't believe so. And oh actually, uh, in fact, I don't I don't think uh, Tully has a appearance period until. Uh, Slamboree 94. Oh, my God. I, so I, this, this I, is the end of the road. Do you know, that's just hit me. I, I wasn't expecting it to come this early. I'm, uh, I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, because they, they were already out. Uh, I know they were already in, uh, had left before Clash of the Champions 4. And I'm almost positive they don't have a match on Clash of the Champions 3. Let me give a quick look. No, they don't. Oh so this God. is it. This is a step for uh, Tully until uh, 1994, where he makes a cameo. Um, really, uh, but this is really it as far as discussing him as a worker for us. And uh, so I know at the end of '89, we talked about doing kind of a decade uh, worker in review from the shows we've seen and yeah. uh, uh, kind of an awards list. And Tully, I think for me, will be in the contention for a wrestler of the year. He'll be in the conversation for that. A wrestler of the decade, excuse me. Um, He just, uh, we saw him through these tapes, I think, have some great tag work and some uh, great singles work. I picked out Arn for MVP um, on the last three shows, and it seemed for a period there that we picked Tully out as the MVP for something like five shows straight, you know. He, he and he definitely still has the most MVPs of any um, of any worker. Um, I think this is going to be a tremendous loss, not only for JCP but for us in this podcast. Because um, I like this is right at the moment where Arn and Tully have probably become my favourite team. Um, period of, of anyone. So it's a shame that we're not going to uh, get to see them. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. I will say that. Knowing what I know about uh, NWA and WCW coming up, it's kind of amazing, really, that their tag division didn't take a huge dip. Uh, but yeah. I, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways they kind of added with uh, quantity, not quality. I mean, I don't think there's a team besides the Midnight Express that's as good as Arn and Tully. Uh, but especially in 1990, you could plug in kind of, you know, Midnight's Rock and Roll Express, Pillman and Tom Zink, uh, Doom, even the Steiners. You could plug in. They had about six or seven teams 
uh, the Freebirds, if they were motivated. You had all these teams that you could kind of fill out a card with uh, effectively. So the division doesn't kind of totally get washed away. But uh, I don't think, again, besides the Midnights, you see a team as effective as uh, Arn and Tully. And I'm kind of thinking, I'm kind of struggling to think of a team that uh, really feels that effective period. Maybe when we get to the Dangerous Alliance, but that was such a short-lived kind of stable. Yeah, well, Arn has uh, a series of partners through the 90s, 90s doesn't he? Um, yeah, I mean, he, he's teamed up with Sabisco, which I know they have a pretty good run, and then him and Eaton yeah. in the Dangerous Alliance, but I, I don't think you really feel like a... Uh, I mean, I think definitely the Horseman, uh, Arn and Tully faction uh, could... They they really feel like a, a semi main event or a third from the top villain type team. Yeah, and I just don't know if you have a long. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, it's kind of something we'll have to wait and see. But uh, uh, definitely sad to see them go. Yeah, and it's happened a lot earlier than I was expecting. Actually, um, that's the thing that surprised me most. Um, oh well, the the next match now. Speaking of tag teams. Um, is the Midnight Express versus the Fantastics, um, who are the U.S. champs at this point. Um, and the stipulation with this match is that Jim Cornette is going to be in a straitjacket, in a cage, hanging over the ring. <laughs> um, hold on. Um, so, so um, yeah, so uh, as this match starts, uh, Jim Cornette gets on the mic and he says, everybody in this arena knows that I'm not crazy. And then Stan Lane gets on the mic, um, and he says he's the man who sold Mike Tyson his first workout video, Mr. James E. Cornette. <laughs> um, and uh, Stan Lane actually has quite an interesting voice. I haven't uh, I haven't heard him on the mic before, but he's got quite a cool, quite a cool uh, voice. Um, the Fantastics enter now, um, and they're pretty. O- I I said here that they're pretty over with the crowd, but we'll get uh, more on that later, I think. Um, Cornette uh, struggles uh, getting into the uh, straight jacket um, and uh, he screams at the ref. Uh, There's quite a funny exchange and at one point he says, can you be bribed? And he offers him uh, $5,000. The ref says he wouldn't take um, $10,000 and then Cornette offers him fifteen. dollars <laughs> um, Cornette says that he's a crackpot um, for being an honest man. Um, Cornette says that he, uh, he wants to cry and uh, it starts having a tantrum, um, and members of the crowd uh, scream at him, Mama's little baby. Um, and that, then he finally goes into the cage. <clears throat> so as the match starts, so that was <clears throat> all fairly entertaining. Um, as the match starts, we get Fulton and Eaton. Um, Fulton gets the better of it. Lane comes in with a series of kicks on Fulton. Uh, he comes back uh, by throwing out... Of, he comes back by throwing him out of the ring. Uh, we get a baseball slide uh, from uh, Fulton, which is pretty cool. Uh, Tommy Rogers comes in. We get two drop kicks on Lane. Eaton comes in and uh, takes a hip toss. Um, Rogers is uh, kind of generally on top now, um, but and he ends up getting a one count. Uh, Ross talks about um, the. Uh, <laughs> he starts talking about the Maryland Athletic State Commission board. Um, of uh, and he says that several of them in, are in the crowd, this board of governors, um, 
and at that point I was just thinking this is kind of random but they do come in they do come to be significant later on um, we had a series of uh, double steam spots now and the Fantastics are on top um, the Midnight's regain advantage with uh, a sneaky bulldog from Eton um, Lane uh, gets some powerful kicks in and then a big clothesline and uh, Lane's kicks are pretty cool I have to say um, Eaton with a nice elbow, uh, we get a neck breaker from him, uh, Tommy Rogers comes in uh, and he's in real trouble basically at this point, he's taking a lot of offence. We get three more cool looking kicks from Lane um, and then he sends uh, Rogers into an awesome back breaker from Eaton and I, I really like that, you get these three kind of kicks from Lane and it sends Rogers staggering into Eaton who then gives a, a kind of swinging neck uh, back breaker and I thought that was a great bit of double teaming. Um, they've cut this ring in half now. We get the 360 backbreaker from Eton now, um, an arm drop by uh, by him, uh, which Jim Ross uh, says is known as the divorce court. Did I hear him right there? The divorce court. Yeah, that's that's they kind of typically called that. I don't know what the origin of that movie is. Uh, I mean, I guess you're. T- divorcing the shoulder bone from the rest of the arm, but uh, it just sounds odd. We get a hammerlock from uh, Eaton now. Uh, Rogers comes back by um, driving uh, Eaton's head into the mat, uh, but it's just a hope spot. Lane comes in, he kicks Fulton um, f- for good measure, as, and then we get a flashy sort of pin um, for two. A d- abdominal stretch, um, and then he shoves uh, Rogers out to the outside. Um, what happens now? Uh, Rogers manages to basically post uh, Eaton uh, while he's outside. We get a headbutt from Lane. Uh, Rogers fights back. Uh, we get a sunset flip for two. Uh, Eaton gets a slam and then hits the uh, Alabama slam from the top rope, um, which is basically a leg drop uh, from the top rope if you've never seen it before. Um, Lane comes in. Uh, Fulton breaks the. Uh, the count. We get another abdominal stretch, a, l- a Russian leg sweep, rocket launcher, which is basically where um, Lane throws uh, Eaton from the top rope onto the opponent. Um, <coughs> Rogers gets his knees up. Uh, we get a hot tag to Fulton. Um, and I thought that the crowd was oddly muted for this hot tag. They didn't really come alive when Fulton came in, which uh, surprised me a little bit. Uh, Lane manages to uh, power slam Fulton. Um, uh, coming through the ropes onto the concrete outside, which was a pretty impressive spot. Meanwhile, Tommy Young takes a bump uh, from a crossbody by Rogers. Lane sneaks uh, sneaks a chain to Eaton, which he wraps around his uh, fist. He nails Fulton with it, and that's the three. And the crowd erupts. Um, Baltimore seemed pretty down on the Fantastics, I thought. Um, and they were, pro- I don't know if they were behind the Midnight Express, but maybe they were happy to see a title switch. Um, at some point, Eaton sneaks the chain uh, into Fulton's tights, uh, which I thought was uh, pretty cool. So, uh, I thought this was a good match. Uh, before we get to your comments, Chad, uh, I'll mention that Cornette comes down, but he's still in the jacket. The Fantastic grab him, um, and uh, they get Tommy Young's belt and uh, whip him, basically. Um, and then we get a kind of messy bit with Bob Coddle. But, uh, yeah, what did you think of this one? Uh, yeah, I, I like this a lot also. Uh, I, I have this above the first match. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, for me, it's kind of 
pretty minimal, but uh, I do like this match better than the first match. Um, I think there's a lot of really neat little touches uh, that consume this match that make it work. Um, and honestly, a lot of it's from the Midnight Express side. I thought the Fantastics were not bad in this match, but uh, I'm, I really, uh, Lane, Stan Lane, I thought this was one of his better performances because Definitely. the little jumping uh, straight boot he gives to Fulton in the early going uh, was really nicely done. Um, I always love the Midnight Express. They did this kind of gimmick match a couple of times where Cornette was in a cage over ringside. And one thing that's really awesome uh, that the Midnights do is in the beginning uh, when the shine segment's happening, they always kind of go outside and look really disoriented and kind of off their game. Uh, and they portrayed that here. There's one sequence where they regroup outside and look up at Cornette for instruction. And that really gets over, I think, the importance of Cornette as a manager. And uh, it's just really smart. I thought the uh, work that the Midnight's did in the Face of Peril segment was really good. Uh, the Alabama Jam looked really great. And then the finish... Uh, was actually very intricate. It wasn't just kind of a, uh, you know, a chain coming out of nowhere uh, for the pin because you had the ref bump. And then um, actually, uh, I can't remember who first used the chain, but uh, I, I think Lane was going to first use the chain onto uh, Tommy Rogers, but they ended up going outside. They yeah. sort of teased the chain being used a couple of times before uh, Eaton was able to hit Fulton with it, which Fulton was still on the outside selling the uh, power slam to the floor. So you kind of forgot about him, and then all of a sudden he comes back in the picture. He gets nailed with the chain for the pin, uh, and then Eaton stuffs it in his tights again, <laughs> like you said, which was very uh, kind of genius. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, this match had a lot of kind of little touches I, like that. The that moment, the moment Fulton, really fi- the moment Fulton finds that chain down his, uh, down his uh, trunks is quite funny. He's, his, his, he gives it like a, a funny look of uh, shock and surprise, which made yeah. me laugh. Um, yeah, I, I really like the midnight. This is probably one of the better midnight matches that we've seen in a while. Um, probably actually since, uh, since Dennis Condry was around. Um, this is probably easily Stan Lane's best match that we've seen. And um, I thought some of their double teaming was very inventive during this match. And uh, yeah, it was good. It, it was a match where we got to see the Midnight Express on top rather than the uh, rather than being dominated, which is um, which is usually for the best. I, 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 as, it, as has become clear as we've been going through these shows, I kind of like the Southern Tag Formula. I think it makes sense. I think it works. Um... And oftentimes, when matches deviate from that, um, I, well, as we saw with the first match, I, I don't like it unless there's a really good reason for it. So, yeah, no, I I thought this match was good, and I, I should mention that Jim Ross uh, kept on mentioning things like little little details that had Jim Cornette uh, had been there, you know, little mistakes that the Midnight's make that wouldn't have happened, for example, or uh, you know, positioning in the ring and. I thought they did a good job of uh, getting over Cornette's importance during the match as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have Meltzer star ratings um, for the show? I do. Uh, hold on. Give, give me uh, one second. I think it's in the... Um, now, Meltzer star ratings are, are quite interesting for this. He gives the first match three and a half stars, and he gives this one four stars, which, which is about that's, right, I think. Four. Yeah, that's pretty close to where I would be with him. Yeah, um, I'd, I mean, yeah. I'd go four stars with this, um, and I'd probably go, like, two stars with the first match. So I'm, right. I'm, I'm quite a bit lower on it than uh, than you are. Um but you know, uh, as like I'm not a fan of arm work at the best of times, so Nikita Koloff doing arm work is you know. <laughs> um, anyway, we we go from this uh, to um, uh, Tony and uh, Jim um, Jim Ross, and basically they're talking as various idiots make faces around them uh, <laughs> behind. Did you, did you see that? Yeah, uh, there was a lot of mugging. Uh, <laughs> Every once in a while, you'd see sort of the security guard kind of shrug people away and stuff like that. But there was definitely a lot of uh, mugging for the camera yeah. when they would cut to them at the ringside. And these guys were Horseman fans because they kept on holding their four fingers out. Um, so anyway, um, as we go from there, a massive triple-tiered cage is lowered onto the ring. Uh, and a ladder, a rather large ladder, is put on one side of this so the guys can climb up to the top. Precious comes out and she's got the key to the bottom cage. Um, and this is the infamous tower, triple tower of doom match. Um, the heels are the Varsity Club, Ivan Koloff, Al Perez, and uh, a masked man who, who uh, is the aforementioned uh, Russian assassin. Um, the faces of the Royal Warriors, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, Ronnie Garvin, and Jimmy Garvin. Um, so, as this match, uh, it's, it, they, they take quite a while to set up this ring, and we get to see them setting this up, and I thought maybe, why not throw to Bob Coddle in an interview at this point, or why not do something else, but obviously they still, like, still, these little things don't occur to the uh, Crockett production. Um, I thought this would be a perfect time, for example, uh, for a promo from Flair or Luger, um, as this is being set up. Anyway, um, Tommy Young is the ref here, and he climbs the ladder in the most awkward, gangly manner imaginable. Did you see this? <laughs> he, he looked really awkward climbing up that ladder. Yeah, he was really uh, delicate climbing <laughs> the ladder. Yeah, he acted like it was going to collapse and fall at any time, which uh, it made me nervous, uh, <laughs> the way he gingerly was climbing up, because I was like, well, if he's having this much of a tr struggle... I can't imagine like when the Road Warriors or Dr. Death or some of these bigger guys get on the ladder, but uh, I think it was just more of a case of Tommy Young being awkward. And I don't know if he's scared of heights or what, but uh, he didn't look very comfortable doing that. So the rules for this are kind of hazy. They do go through it. Um, basically, a horn will sound and the trap doors will open for 10 seconds. It starts off where two guys... It's a bit like... Uh, a bit like... Um, war games where two guys start off and then at intervals another two guys can come in um, but at the same time the trap doors open for 10 seconds which gives a window of opportunity for somebody to make it down to the next ring down and the aim is to get to the bottom and to leave out the door which Precious has the key for um, so th this is I was a bit hazy of, of those rules going into I, I can only really say that after having watched it 
I don't think they do a tremendous job of explaining the rules. Um, Jim Ross says that uh, Tommy Young needs some hazard pay for being involved with this match. Um, Ronnie Garvin and uh, Ivan Koloff um, climb the ladders to the top of the cage um, and they fight in this little cage at the top. And uh, this cage at the top is small. I think there's barely enough room for four people to, uh, to stand in there. Um, this is one of the more bizarre matches that we've seen, uh, I think. Um, Steve Williams and uh, Mike Rotunda kind of wait to enter outside of the little cage at the top. Um, we get some stiff shots back and forth between uh, uh, Ivan and Garvin. Um, then Williams and Rotunda enter as Garvin and Koloff try to go through the trap door. So that the horn goes, Garvin and Koloff try to get through, um, and Williams and Rotunda kind of fight behind them. Um, uh, we, we get a shot of a girl in the crowd who looks absolutely baffled by this. She's got a look of utter bemusement on her face. Um, the camera quickly pulls away from that girl. Um, Garvin gets uh, manages to get through the trap door, um, so he's on his own in that middle ring, but Koloff doesn't, so it's two on one in the top cage. Um, next thing that happens is that the horn goes, so that Garvin, Ronnie Garvin, makes it down to the bottom of the cage, um, so he's kind of on his own all the way down the bottom. Uh, as Steve Williams gets down to the middle cage, uh, and so does Ivan Koloff. Uh, Precious um, lets Garvin out, um, and I've just written here, what the fuck is going on? I don't, I'd like, so Garvin's left now, he's out of the match, um, which seems like really anticlimactic way of, uh, but he's made it down to the bottom, so he leaves. Um, now, uh, Ivan and Williams are, are kind of having a mini-match in the middle cage, uh, Animal, Al Perez, and Mike Rotunda are on the top cage. Um, the trap doors open. Al Perez and Animal um, get down to the middle cage uh, with the Russian assassin Rotunda and Hawk up in the top cage. The horn blows again. Uh, I'm not calling all of the action here because it's very difficult to make out what's happening. The horn blows again. The trap doors open. Hawk gets to the middle cage. Uh, Al Perez and Animal make it to the bottom. Animal gets out. Al Perez gets out. I have no idea what's going on, to be honest. Um, the top cage has Sullivan, Rotunda, and Jimmy Garvin in it. Uh, all of the rest of the guys who were left in the match um, are in the middle. The horn blows again. Um, Ivan Kolos and the assassin and the assassin get to the bottom. Why don't they? But they don't leave at this point. They kind of wait around. Um, I've just written here: leave. Don't wait for Hawk. But they 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 do. They wait for Hawk. Um, um, predictably, they miss a double clothesline and Hawk uh, gets both of them. Um, I think the Russians should have just left. Now we have Williams and Rotunda in the middle cage. Hawk leaves. Uh, Williams punches Rotunda eight times. Um, Williams manages to get to the bottom and leaves. Uh, so we have Rotunda, Sullivan, and um, Jimmy Garvin in the middle cage. We get a double knocking knocker. Uh, the horn blows. Sullivan lies on Garvin as Rotunda slips down and out. So basically it's just uh, Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Garvin um, at the end of this match now and they're in the middle cage. Um, Garvin stomps on Sullivan uh, as a wild brawl erupts outside. So basically all of the other guys are fighting outside now. Um, Garvin works on Sullivan's leg. Both men get down to the bottom. 
Sullivan goes after Precious. Um, Garvin gets two leg drops on Sullivan's leg. And then a Brain Buster, uh, which is a move we don't see very often, um, unless you watch All Japan. Um, Precious opens uh, the cage opens the gate. Sullivan charges, but he's too late. Um, Garvin gets out, so the faces win. Then Sullivan locks the cage, um, with, with Precious still inside there. He crawls towards Precious in a really sinister manner. Um, she kicks at him. Sullivan has her leg. Um, Garvin, uh, well, Hawk starts uh, reclimbing the ladder. Then Garvin goes up as well. Sullivan grabs at, uh, at her clothes. Uh, which is very rapey, I think. Um, he starts uh, choking Precious out now. Hawk makes it to the bottom. Nail Sullivan. Garvin uh, uh, hugs Precious. And Sullivan is one sick bastard. So what do we make of all of this, Chad? I thought this was way, way, way too long. <laughs> uh, just uh, way too long. I mean, and, and it's kind of one of them things where the, the three cages look pretty cool on yeah. your screen uh, when you see it set up you're like okay this is a kind of interesting looking setup but the the match just doesn't work uh, everything from the rules to the chaos of it uh, I mean the good thing about war games is it kind of builds to where everybody's in there and then you get usually just a few minutes of kind of frantic action with everybody in there yeah. Uh, here, there was just stuff going on all the time uh, in multiple cages, uh, which made the camera, in order to get the whole match, the camera had to pan out to a real wide shot. Uh, so you really couldn't see anything. And another thing was uh, the way to finish and win the match, kind of from a strategy standpoint. Uh, it didn't make a lot of sense. Like you said, there was a lot of times where people would go down to a lower level and then just stand around, which mm -hmm. if the objective is to leave, you know, this is essentially a match where you're trying to flee. Why wouldn't you just uh, kind of just go ahead and leave the, uh, leave the cage and give your team a better chance of winning? So overall, I thought this was really long, uh, boring, and uh, I think, it, you can see that because it's a concept they don't go back to, uh, to the best of my knowledge, again. I, I do believe there is one more kind of Tower of Doom match involving, in my mind, Hogan, Savage, and a pile of heels. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about. That's Uncensored 96. Yeah. Uh, that That's kind of a... That's a kind of weird match in that the cages are set up... Uh, set up on the entrance, like where the entrance is. Yeah. That's where, I mean, I guess, I guess that's, that's sort of the same structure though. And, uh, that's one of the worst matches of all time. This wasn't yeah. as bad as that. <laughs> but uh, Sullivan is involved. It's this is obviously Kevin Sullivan's idea, right? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I guess, uh, I kind of wish whatever that parchment of paper or whatever <laughs> that they kept presenting, it clashed too. Somebody should just took that thing and burned it because uh, <laughs> this is a concept of a match really sucked. And I don't know if Sullivan himself was booking this feud or uh, or what, but kind of, I, I mean, as a booker, he's always been someone that needs some editing. Yeah. Um, and, so, and somebody should have just 
thought out this match at least a little better. But, I mean, this seemed kind of expensive to construct. Yeah, and I do think that the match is saved, though, by the final sequence between Garvin, Sullivan, and uh, and the bit with Precious post-match. I think that that gives that kind... I'm not going to say it was worth it to get to that point, but I can, I, I can understand... Like the idea that this was all just a plan of Sullivan to get Precious alone in a cage. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the best sequence, um, especially when like uh, Hawk climbs down and hammers Sullivan. They go to a shot of the crowd where the crowd's really uh, into it. You see a lot of arms raised in the air. Uh, so that that's definitely the best portion of the match, but yeah, we really didn't need 22 minutes to get there. Yeah, and I, ha- I have to say, uh, Sullivan is particularly dark during that bit when he's crawling towards her and kind of grabbing at her clothes. It's kind of I don't, I, I, I just I, I really don't like Kevin Sullivan. He's he's really someone that even I mean, obviously his uh his Satan worshiping footage that. I think there's very little to none that's made tape of that, so I haven't seen any of that. But I just, he's someone that I've never been able to really get behind or take serious. I don't know what it is with him, maybe his framework. Uh, but uh, even even as like a deranged, kind of sadistic character, I just never really buy it. So that's something that... Uh, that I really struggle with. One of the little comments that Meltzer makes here is that um, he criticizes Hawk, or he cri- cri- criticized the booking here. He says that really this was Jimmy Garvin's save to make, so why was Hawk involved in that bit? That's kind of true. Um, but, uh, I mean, Jimmy was kind of fresh on his heels too. But, uh, I mean, that's that's true as well. He gives this two and three quarters. My feeling is that you might go one for this. Uh, if if that, I, I really did not like this match. I thought it was. I mean, I just, I just think that in a show that's, um, I I really like this show overall. I'll just say that now. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know if really like, but I like the show. But to me, this was kind of just the middle section that really dragged it to a halt. And uh, with the action, I mean, I don't even know if I'd be comfortable rating the action because, again, with the long camera, uh, you lost a lot of intensity with the brawling and you didn't even really see how stiff a lot of the punches were uh, because of the camera angles. Yeah, but I I will say, I mean, I don't don't think I'm quite as down on it as as you are um, because I just think as a spectacle, as a one-off, unusual match to see, I'm kind of glad I've seen it, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, the first half of it does drag. So, so anyway, we we, we go from this to um, Bob Coddle, who's in the crowd, um, and he can't believe that match has just happened, and nor can I really. Now, I would have thought that we'd have a promo here, but it's just a pointless segment with Bob Coddle killing time, saying nothing of, at all of importance. Um, it's really strange. So that they even thought to have a talky segment here as the cage is being set down why not Why not give us a promo um, so the next match here is Barry Windham who's the US champion versus uh, Dusty Rhodes Windham's with JJ Dillon um, Tony Schiavone calls this the biggest match of his career to date um, 
and uh, Ross reminds us that Dusty never lost the title. Uh, we get some terrible music dubbed over Dusty's entrance as we uh, as we start out, and it's even more terrible than the usual kind of generic WWE music they they stick in there. Um, as they were making the announcements, I noticed that Dusty is now up to 289 pounds, so he's put on almost 20 pounds since the last time we've seen him, apparently. In, a, in about a month, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wyndham, uh, Wyndham is in a kind of black leather number, uh, where he's wearing a black leather jacket, some kind of black leather, what would you call those, leggings? They're not leggings, they're kind of like black leather all around his... Chaps. Yeah, chaps, and a black leather waistcoat. Kinky. Um, we get a... Uh, so, as this starts out, we get an arm drag from Rhodes, um, strong shoulder tackle, uh, wind, wind and bails. Um, JR gives a bit of analysis here. He says uh, that there are two factors at, in this match. First of all is the emotion, the fact that these are former best friends. Um, and the second thing is that JJ uh, Dillon really hates um, Dusty Rhodes, and he's faced him many times as a manager, so he's got some tactics. Um, he also mentions that um, Dusty is um, kind of, you know, weighs more than uh, Barry Windham, but the Windham's got youth on his side. So uh, as we start this off, uh, we get an elbow um, to the back of the head from Windham, uh, a body slam and a DDT from the Dream, crossbody from the top rope by Dusty. Windham uh, bails again. Um, Dusty uh, starts uh, dancing now, and we get some jive jabs. Um, Dylan gets on the apron uh, and takes a tumble. We get a five minutes uh, call from Capetta at this point. Um, we get some kicks from Wyndham to Dusty's uh, midsection. The action goes outside. We get a shoulder uh, into the railing. Um, he, Wyndham goes for a pile driver outside, but obviously that's reversed into a backdrop. Um, we get six or seven. Um, uh, punches now, I think, from Wyndham. Uh, another five in the turnbuckle, so it's kind of odd to see a heel do that turnbuckle punching spot. Um, things go uh, back outside. I think, it, what do we call it, a toupee to the outside. Um, uh, a slam by Rhodes uh, on the concrete. Dylan distracts uh, Dusty uh, for Wyndham to come back. He hits a slam, uh, big elbow drop. He goes for the claw. Uh, Dusty fights, and uh, I still don't really like this move, the claw. I know you're. I know you like the claw. Um, we get a series of near falls from uh, from this claw. Dusty might be um, blacking out here, and Tony mentions that um, this was how uh, Ric Flair won the title from him two uh, two years ago uh, in St. Louis. That he blacked out, which was a nice little callback from Tony. Um, Dusty reaches down for some jive power, but it's just a hope spot. Uh, the claw remains on, and it's been on for a long time now. Um, and uh, Dusty tries to get a third wind, um, and this just looks uh, ridiculous to me, you know, this claw spot with Dusty kind of wriggling around trying to get a third wind. <laughs> um, we get, but eventually we do get a bionic elbow. Uh, Wyndham goes um, straight back to the claw, though. Um, Dusty sits on the turnbuckle and slaps uh, Wyndham. Uh, Wyndham then goes for a superplex, which is not happening. Tommy Young takes a bump. Uh, Dusty slams Wyndham from the top. We get a big elbow drop. Fifteen minutes have gone. And then out of nowhere, Ronnie Garvin comes down. Um, and he's in a pair of jeans. And then out of nowhere, wow, 
he dust he nails Dusty Rhodes, uh, lays him out with a right hand. Uh, Wyndham goes for the claw again, and this gets a three count. Dusty is out cold. I can't believe Ronnie Garvin unexpected heel turn here. Steve Williams is out to check on Dusty. Not bad at all. I thought this match, but there was a lot of claw. What did you think? Um, I kind of. Uh, I apologize for defending the claw <laughs> on the last show because this was some of the worst shit I've ever seen <laughs> in regards to the claw. Uh, I, I actually timed it, and he was in the claw hole for about five minutes and 20 seconds, which is just absolutely uh, insanely ridiculous. Dusty, if if you had a problem with the way Nikita looked in his uh, some of the submissions <laughs> earlier, I can imagine what you thought about Dusty kind of juicing up here. Uh, looked completely stupid, uh, and it is kind of a shame because I did like the match up to that. Yeah, uh, pretty good. I mean, I thought like especially uh, Wyndham was really working hard. I thought tonight and the bump he did where uh, he was on the inside of the ring, Dusty was on the apron outside, and Dusty kind of flips him over to the concrete floor. I thought that was a great bump uh, by Wyndham, uh, but that that claw kind of runs any hope of the match for me. I'd still say it was decent, but the, the claw went on way too long. Yeah, and I mean. I don't know if you can Dusty Rhodes' face during uh, during the, some of those spots where he's trying to get the jive power. I mean, he looks... He, he, it's almost like he's channeling soul singers or something. He's kind of doing like a voodoo magic face. It's, it's bizarre. It really is strange. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is some of the weirdest... Uh, kind of the most weird facial expressions I can remember where he kind of gradually gets up and starts dancing around. It, it just looks completely ridiculous. And uh, somebody that's always been a pretty big Dusty fan, uh, I was kind of embarrassed for him watching this because I thought it looked awful. Yeah. Well, Meltzer gives this one one and a quarter stars. Yeah, well, that's, that's typical because, I mean, he hates Dusty. I mean, I might do a little bit more just because the... 12 minutes or whatever up to the claw were pretty good. But uh, that, that claw hold, I mean, it, 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 it would have been okay if it had only been like two minutes. But, I mean, talk about kind of a way to kind of kill a finisher because this is Wyndham's new finisher and Dusty's in it for, like I said, five minutes. Uh, five plus minutes, then it doesn't end the match. They still had to have Ronnie Garvin come out there and, I guess, take the bribe to uh, end up winning the match. Meltzer does mention here that when Garvin, um, when Garvin does lay out Dusty, he reckons that most of the fans cheered. <laughs> Did you hear that? Yeah, I, I mean, this. I don't know. <laughs> I, I really don't know what to say. I would say, kind of, if you want to. Watch the Tower of Doom as a spectacle. Uh, you should just go ahead and watch this match as a spectacle too, because that whole claw sequence with the way Dusty acts uh, may be kind of one of the most uh, unintentionally funny um, <laughs> wrestling things I've seen in a while, because it looked completely ridiculous. What did you make of the Garvin heel turn? 
I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm kind of interested to read uh, his history because it, it, I, you know, I'd kind of forgotten about it, and I don't think it really leads to much. It, I um, think he's in WWF by early '89 at the at the, yeah. at the latest. So um, getting towards the end now for Garvin. Um, I didn't really think that they needed to turn him at this point. He wasn't getting, didn't seem stale to me. I think uh, his post um, world title run is not bad. You know, tagging with Jimmy Garvin and he's still reasonable kind of mid level face guy. Um, it, one thing that I thought was weird. I mean, I guess maybe we're going to talk about it with them in the backstage, but uh, I mean, they never really. I don't know, maybe they mentioned it in the TV or something, but that Garvin was hard on cash or what. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, he certainly looked giddy getting this suitcase of money from uh, not only J.J., but uh, Gary Hart was there somehow, which I, d- I don't know what connection he had. So I'm kind of, I don't know if there's some blanks that can be filled in. Uh, from that, but that was just sort of a weird uh, sequence. Yeah, so, so yeah, we're taken to the back uh, to the locker room, and Garvin's basically celebrating with JJ Dillon and Gary Hart, and then he's seen carrying a big, massive suitcase uh, of um, of cash away, and with a kind of mega smile, a very sleazy smile on his face. Um, um, so yeah, if anybody knows a bit more about that, let us uh, let us know. This is um, if you were watching the TV around this time. So anyway, uh, we this uh, leads us uh, to the main event: uh, Lex Luger versus Ric Flair for the world title. Um, JJ Dillon uh, busy tonight. He, this is his third match. Um, I note here that um, Flair is definitely booed by the crowd coming into this, and that Lex Luger is really over in Baltimore. Um, now. As as this match is starting, I am sure that I spot Dave Meltzer himself in the crowd uh, with a horseman sign. I could be wrong, but it looked a lot like uh, Meltzer. I don't know. Did you see? Uh, did you see Meltzer in the crowd? I didn't notice that. I would hope not, but <laughs> who knows? Um, as things start out, Luger overpowers Flair. Um, we get an arm drag by Luger. Two big um, uh, chops by Flair, which have no effect at all. Luger kind of laughs them off. Um, we get a hip toss, a drop kick from Luger. Flair takes a tumble to the outside. Ross mentions that um, for maybe for the first time Luger's a college degree. Um, he doesn't give the grade point average at this point. We get a gorilla slam from uh, Luger. Flair falls outside uh, and over the railings. Um, he calls uh, Tommy Young over, who then shoves him um, and uh, then runs away and hides behind next Luger, which was kind kind of weird. Um, this ongoing Flair Tommy Young feud. Um, Flair shouts uh, at a guy in the crowd, and he says, uh, "You got a problem with that fat boy?" Uh, we get a test of strength, um, which is not something that Flair should be getting involved with with Luger. Another gorilla slam, uh, a bear hug. Ross praises Luger's game plan here, and Shivani mentions that Flair's old back injury, um, it, you know, is going to come into play uh, from the plane crash. Um, we get a suplex from the outside to the inside from Luger, two count, very high elbow drop. Um, then he goes for it again but misses. Flair hits chop outside, nails Luger on the railings, throat first. We get a snap mare, a knee drop, reverse knife edge, another snap mare, another knee drop, uh, which gets a two count. 
we get a right hand into Luger's ribs, uh, and he focuses on the rib cage for a bit now. Uh, Luger makes a semi comeback uh, with a flying clothesline, which doesn't quite connect. Um, we get an uppercut by Flair. Um, he goes to the top. Luger shakes the ropes, and Flair uh, lands uh, back first. Uh, no, sorry, he, he lands uh, balls first on the top rope, uh, which could hurt. Uh, Jim Ross says that can adjust your career. Um, Luger misses a drop kick, um, and uh, both men are down. We get another clothesline uh, by Luger, which gets a two. Sunset Flip gets a two. Uh, Flair kicks to Luger in the leg, uh, and now works on it for the next few minutes. We get figure four. Luger is uh, in so much pain here that he's virtually doing sit-ups uh, in the figure four. Um, he's kind of convulsing back and forth. Uh, Flair uses the ropes for leverage. Um, Luger reverses the figure four, but Flair kind of breaks it pretty soon. Um, he attacks uh, Luger's leg again. Luger hits a clothesline over the top rope. Uh, again, there's no DQ. It's momentum, we're told. Um, we get a big chop, uh, four of them, from Flair. Uh, Luger roars like a lion now and comes back. We get a third gorilla slam, uh, but he misses a knee drop. Uh, which uh, is called as a tactical error by Jim Ross. Um, Flair goes up uh, top and uh, he's caught and takes a fourth Gorilla Slam. We get eight punches in the corner and a big clothesline from Luger, which gets a two count, but it's broken because it's in the ropes. We get another ten punches from Luger uh, and a, a Flair flip to the outside. Ross um, says that his inexperience is showing here. Uh, we get a backslide for two. Both men go over. Uh, the top rope, and uh, Flair has hurt his leg. He yells out, ah, my leg. Um, he posts Luger outside, uh, gets a chair. Tommy Young comes out and uh, convinces him to drop it. Uh, Dylan posts uh, Luger again, um, who uh, now has some colour. Uh, not a lot of colour, it must be said, but he does have some. Um, we get five punches uh, now. Luger hogs up. Um, we get a power slam. The crowd is wild. We get a torture rack and the bell goes. Luger goes nuts and thinks he's won the title. We get all sorts of uh, faces, including Sting and Steve Williams, hit the ring to celebrate with him. But we get an announcement from Gary Michael Cabetta that the State Athletic Commission um, of uh, Maryland has intervened um, and that they've thrown this match out because of the laceration to Luger's face. Um, we... Uh, yeah, I think his name is James Iannucci, the uh, State Athletic Commissioner of Maryland. Um, and there's a massive bullshit chant from the uh, Baltimore crowd. What do you think of this one, Chad? I, I like the match a lot. Um, I thought that kind of... Um, I'd like to commend Luger because in some ways, especially in the very beginning, like his strategy of kind of walking through uh, Flair's offense, we'd seen that a few times, uh, probably most notably with Hawk at the bunkhouse stampede. Uh, but Luger was able to kind of throw in some type of kind of cold, determined emotion that uh, made it not frustrating. Uh, and his strategy was sound in going after the back. Then the flare section where he controls the action I thought was really well done. Uh, very brisk pace and the selling from Luger was really good. Uh, even when he was in the fair four, he sold the leg throughout the remainder of the match. 
Um, so I thought uh, this was a really good match, and then the finish, though, I think is maybe one of the worst, uh, <laughs> probably one of the worst finishes for a major show I can think of. Um, kind of, it kind of had been discussed about the Maryland Athletic Commission, but uh, just felt really cheap, uh, really hollow. Um, and if I was Luger, I'd be absolutely furiously pissed because, I mean, he'd been bleeding for a, uh, a, a decent amount of time um, before they decided to call the match after he'd gotten flare in the torture rack and everything else. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I really didn't see where Luger bladed, but uh, it to me, it really should have been a lot more blood because to call it based on what we saw seemed uh, made, you know, Luger kind of seem like a pansy too because it's like little trickle of blood. I mean, I probably had nosebleeds that had <laughs> bled more than what Luger was bleeding here, and, you know, it cost him a chance at the championship. Yeah, and, and also I thought um, <laughs> it made the whole show seem kind of down on Marilyn. Do you know what I mean? It was almost like Jim Ross was complaining about, you know, Marilyn itself. Yeah, which, I mean, that to me, I, I, I think that may be kind of more Ross uh, kind of winking at the crowd or at the audience saying, you know, I, I recognize that this is a shitty finish. Yeah. Um, so he's just kind of coming up with something to justify what they just saw. But I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a decent, probably one of the better Luger matches we've seen so far. Um, I do think he's still young here, um, and he's on top for a significant portion of this match. And I, again, I think it's telling that he doesn't have a huge amount of stuff to do. You know, we see four different Gorilla Slams in this match, and part of that, I think, is because he doesn't have much more to do, if that makes sense. Like, his repertoire is not big enough at this point um, to carry a, a you know a 20 minute match that said I, I do think that what we see is pretty good you know it, it's not a bad match at all um, I you know the structure structure wise it's not a typical uh, flare match I think I think there's um, and Ross and Shivani do quite a good job of uh, talking about Luger's game plan and his strategy and the fact he used to be in the horseman so you know he definitely knows how to approach flare um, and then maybe the inexperienced line was slightly overused that they kept on saying that he was, you know, his inexperience is showing through because there's various times where he doesn't hook the leg or um, he hesitates before going for a pin or something like that. Um, but I, I, I think as a general story, it kind of worked for the match. Um, uh, but obviously, you know, finish is not, is a bad finish. Um, and... Uh, Melter actually argues that this was the time that maybe Flair should have dropped the title for a while. He's been the champion for a long time. And um, he actually says, I'd rate him as number three in the world behind Owen Hart and Ted DiBiase, which is kind of topical given our recent discussions on PWO. Um, nobody will deny that he's been a tremendous champion for the past seven years, but now it's time to make a major change. And uh, that, that, that is... <laughs> What a, what a ridiculous statement to make. I mean, of, of the top three, you throw out uh, just what I've seen of 88 All Japan, 
and uh, New Japan, for that matter, to throw out uh, Owen Hart and DiBiase as your top two <laughs> over uh, over what was going on elsewhere just seems asinine. But uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it kind of to me, in some ways, it feels like they sort of booked themselves into a corner with this match because of all the talk and all that. I mean, I I kind of don't know whether. I mean, it'd been interesting if they'd have pulled the trigger on Luger here, but I kind of do agree with what you're saying that I don't know if he was quite ready. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, it, it, it's definitely, I think, a uh, point of contention on whether he should have gotten the belt. I mean, I think there definitely should have been a better finish figured out or else they shouldn't have booked the match in the way they did. But, uh, I mean, I don't know if Luger was quite ready, because uh, he did still show some weaknesses, but uh, I thought as far as putting together a big match, this was the best we've seen, even though, again, he still had some flaws. I don't want to overly gush Luger, because uh, in his comeback, he did some punches in the corner that looked really weak yeah. uh, right before the finish. And then uh, also, you know, he did sell his leg, I thought, really well during the match. But as soon as he wins or thinks he wins, he jumps about 12 feet in the air right on the leg. Yeah, that's true. Uh, which was kind of disappointing to see, especially with how well he sold the leg work during the actual match. Um, so, I mean, there's still, there's still flaws there. Uh and I think it would have been maybe a breath of fresh air if he had won the title. But I, I don't, I don't, he's certainly not what you, I mean, you're so used to Flair kind of, I, I mean, I think really, too, with the NWA, you have a mold of kind of a traveling, polished champion yeah. uh, that can kind of go to different territories, work a match with anybody's top guy in the territories and really represent the title well and Luger is certainly not that type of person even though you know now the by this time the uh, NWA was just you know their own kind of little entity and he wouldn't be defending the title in other territories it's still uh, it would have been a definite break in mindset from what they uh, had traditionally had as a champion yeah I mean <laughs> My view on this is that if you if you were going to change the title at this point, probably the man that you should look to is Barry Windham, and not turn Windham when they did turn him. Um, that means we wouldn't have got that version of the Horseman. But from of the people on the roster, the only guy who could carry things on the face side, work work wise, was probably Windham to do what a traditional NWA champ would have done. Um, I I don't see Lex Luger doing that, and this would have not only been if if they put the title on Luger, it wouldn't have just been um, a lot for Luger to to do at this point in his career. It would have been a major change in booking philosophy for them. I mean, they'd have had to book him like Hogan or something for for it to work, which is something that Crockett had never done. He'd never had a champ like that. Um, the other thing I thought I'd know is that this does kind of set a pattern for Luger's whole career, doesn't it? That he's kind of a choker when it comes to the... Like, he's really close to winning the title, but doesn't quite win it. Yeah, this is the first... Uh, this is the first example of um, of kind of that motif that really kind of 
in some ways haunts the rest of his career. Um, and and uh, I mean, we'll see a lot of his moments again. Uh, and, but I, I do think that like the way he'd been presented throughout his career made it so satisfactory. Like the uh, like that Monday Nitro when he beats Hogan for the belt. I mean, that makes that moment so satisfactory because he had always choked in those positions before. Yeah. Uh, of, of course, he loses it like six days later, but, um, you know, it, it kind of does, this does seem like the first sort of, uh, entry into the lucre choke, um, kind of protocol that most, I think most fans remember of him. Yeah. I, I do think he's one guy who's hurt by booking quite a lot. I mean, if he doesn't choke, he, um, tends to have turns at the wrong moment, you know, um, like so, so when we actually do see him win the world title, like he kind of turns on the same night, so it's kind of tainted. You know, it, it, it's usually like the timing of things is that night with Hogan is probably the only night where it all comes together for Lugo in a big match scenario that I can think of. Really, um, usually there's some kind of booking question or some bullshit that that hurts uh, hurts Lugo. Um, okay, so. Uh, let's do our end of uh, show awards. Sounds good. Yeah, uh, match of the night. Uh, my match of the night, I am going to go with the main of... Mm, ooh, let me think about this. I think there's... I, I think I am going to go with... Uh, actually, I am going to call an audible, and I'm going to switch at the last minute. I'm going to go with the Midnight Express and the Fantastics. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like the main event a lot, but that finish, again kind of talking it out with you, the finish really annoys me, I think, even more than when I watched it again. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and the, the, the Flair-Luger match is a match I'd seen countless times, so I think I was kind of immune to uh, the finish. I'd expected it. But uh, if I'd have been watching that live, I'd have been pretty royally pissed. Um, and in contrast, the Midnight Express and the Fantastics had a really clever finish, I thought. Uh, so, you know, the finish kind of edges that match for me, where I think the actual match structure, I may prefer the main event just slightly, but the uh, finish of the Midnight's match is a ton better than the main event, so I'm going to go with that. Yeah, and uh, we will see better Luger Flair matches uh, in the future, I think. Yeah, so certainly their Wrestle War. Uh, 1990 matches. Uh, I think a truly great match, and I remember their Starcade match being uh, better than this one too. So I'm interested to see if that holds up. Yeah, to, I same match of the night for me. Um, it's the midnight match. I think that's clearly the match of the, the best match on this card. Um, and uh, like I said, we we saw some uh, innovative uh, double teaming in that match, which I I enjoyed. And the finish was really quite intricate as we went through. Um, MVP. Um, now my MVP, I am gonna go with. Uh, I am gonna go with Ric Flair because of. Uh, I think the way he worked that match, he made uh, Luger look effective. Um, I think his offensive segment was one of the uh, better championship Flair offensive segments we've seen. Uh, kind of reminded me of the cage match with Jimmy Garvin, where he really busted out a lot of stuff. Uh, he looked really focused tonight. 
Um, and I thought he put in a really good performance. Yeah, well, this is going to seem like I'm taking Flair for granted again. Uh, but I'm going to go, I think, with Bobby Eaton. Um, I I thought this was probably the... like We mentioned Stan Lane and that he had a good match. I think this is probably the best Bobby Eaton match we've seen as well. Um, in terms of, you know, we got some... He was good at selling. Like, he did all the usual things that Bobby Eaton did. But we got some flashier offense than normal from him as well. You know, the Alabama... Uh, jam the uh, 360 backbreaker, the swinging neckbreaker he did, the other backbreaker. So, uh, you know me, I I kind of like uh, big moves, and um, Bob Eaton gave us quite a few of them. So, I'm going to go with Bob Eaton as my MVP for this show. <laughs> um, so now we get to the Billy Graham Award, and I don't think there's any question who I'm going for. But who are you going for, Chad? Um, I uh, I'm I'm probably going with somebody different. My uh, winner is Dusty. <laughs> um, I thought I thought he looked awful in the claw. Um, I thought the booking on this show beyond that was pretty awful in certain categories. Uh, the opening match in the main event, the show was kind of bookended by terrible finishes. Uh, so, you know, add in the selling on the claw to the booking and Dusty's pretty much, uh, honestly, my runaway choice for the award tonight. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I'm obviously going to go for Nikita Koloff because I thought that he sucked hard, really hard in that first match. Um, and he didn't, like, for me, Dusty is redeemed slightly by the fact that his facials are entertaining and they made me laugh, whereas nothing that Nikita did made me look, you know, he just annoyed me in everything that he did. So Nikita Koloff for me, and I think that's, you know, third time probably that he's won the Billy Graham Award, um, which is uh, as many times as Billy Graham himself won it. <laughs> um, now, just as, we're, just as we're closing off here, um, Meltzer basically mentions that of the past six major cards that Crockett have put out, um, which is basically the two class shows, uh, Crockett Cup, Starcade, this, um, and uh, what would the other show be? The Bunkhouse Stampede. That he rates this as the third, the third best one out of the six of them, um, behind Clash One um, and the Crockett Cup. The second night of the Crockett Cup, he puts above this. Where would you rank it? Do you think, off the top of your head? Okay, what's what's the six shows again? You got both clashes. Crockett Cup, Bunkhouse Stampede, this show, and what's the other one? Starcade 87. Oh, uh, mm, I definitely have it behind Clash 1. Um, Clash 1, to me, is clearly the best show. Yeah. I'd probably, uh, I, th I think I would maybe have this as second, though, honestly. Um, even without the bad finishes. Um, I mean, because to me, Starcade 87... Uh, also had a pretty crappy finish in the Road Warriors match. Um, and while the main event was more uh, satisfactory in that show, um, I think overall, that I mean, to me, this show had three good matches minimum at it. And uh, when you're talking about a five-match card, uh, that took up, uh, I mean, that was probably, uh, that was, almost 60 to 70% of the show I thought was really good. 
and even the uh, other stuff that I didn't think was good, the Tower of Doom kind of has a uh, kind of appeal being a unique match. And the the Dusty Window match was pretty good, just had a terrible uh, ending sequence. So I'd probably rank this show second and uh, Starcade 87 third. What about yourself? I, I would go along with that. Um, I, yeah, I'd put a second as well. I actually really like this show. Um, it, it doesn't have any classic, classic, you know, there's no five-star classics on this show. But as, it's a pretty solid card. You know, there's five matches, and there's something of interest in each one of them. You know, the Tower of Doom, for novelty alone, is worth watching, at least once, I'd say. And, um, you know, I thought the stuff at the end with uh, Kevin Sullivan was creepy um, as well. Uh, the... Um, yeah, there's three good matches, like you said. I think the Midnight's match is one of their better matches. I may even go higher than four stars if I had to rate it. Um, and it's probably the best Lex Luger match to date, would you agree, from him in this run? The best major match that he's had. I think he I think he shows with the shows that he, he can main event, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think as an overall match, I definitely like the uh, Clash 1 tag match better. Oh yeah, 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 no. But but I mean, that's he obviously was asked to do a whole lot more in this match. Uh, so I I would say this was probably maybe his best performance in some ways. Yeah, and oh, don't forget that you had Arn Tully and Sting in that match as well. So. Right. What? Yeah. Uh, Wyndham actually. Oh and sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It was Wyndham. Wyndham. Um, Arn and Tully, so in that okay, I, I could probably have a decent match with those guys. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, okay, well, uh, I think we have Clash 3 next, um, and I'm looking forward to that, but I'm looking forward to it slightly less because there won't be uh, any Arn or Tully. I'm, I'm sad about that. They're in the show, right? They just don't have a match together? No. No, they're not in that show oh at all. Oh, God. Oh. Either one of them. I, I don't know when their last date was uh, with uh, with Crockett when they left, but because uh, I I did think that uh, I thought that Arn had a singles match, but when I just looked at the results, uh, got Rotundo versus Brad Armstrong, uh, Nikita and Steve Williams versus the Sheep Herder. So I can't wait to hear your thoughts on that one. <laughs> Uh, Dusty versus Kevin Sullivan, which I can't wait to hear my thoughts on that one. Uh, Ricky Morton and Ivan Koloff in a chain match, and then Sting and Barry Windham, and kind of uh, that that match I'm looking forward to rewatching because that's uh, I've, I've been really impressed with Sting. Also, I mean, I think he clearly looks like a big star in what we've seen yeah. uh, on these shows. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see him in kind of a long-form uh, singles match with Barry Windham, who, you know, he honestly, in some ways, I think he's been really cramped by these big shows that made my perception of him lower because uh, he's a guy that a lot of people kind of talk about as an all-timer. And uh, b- besides, like, maybe the Crockett Cup 87 match with Flair, uh, which I think I was lower on than most, even though I still thought it was a great match. Um, he he hasn't had many matches or great performances, really. No. A lot of that's been his competition, but I I I agree with you there, and I, 
I, I mean, Barry Windham's one of those guys who I've seen quite a lot of him, and he's never really he's never really done it for me, you know. Um, so I'm looking like as we get into '89, seeing more. He leaves for a while, doesn't he? Goes to WF at some point. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I think uh, pretty much after uh, probably Starcade, I think maybe his last uh, his last bit. And I, I mean, I know before I've liked his '91, '92 tag team stuff probably the most in his series with Brian Pillman. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, I've kind of been surprised that I mean, even a match with Dusty, Dusty was not a great, great worker. And I, I and I don't want to dog him on this show because I thought he was good here. But just in some of his matches we've seen, it felt like he's kind of just been there. Yeah. So he he's got it all to do before he leaves for WF, uh, <laughs> I think. Um, all right, Joe. Well, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, farewell for now, and uh, farewell to Arn and Tully. So we got MVP, uh, gotta be Tully, isn't it? Yeah, I would say Tully. So our MVP, um, Tully. I, I would I would say Magnum and Tully together because when, when you think Starcade, you think that match. Yeah, I, I would agree to that. I mean, Tully was great. Um, I sort of expect that from Tully in a lot of his big matches. So MVP for the Great American Bash '86, Chad. Um. I feel like I say this every time. Uh, I think this is three times in a row where I went with him, but I'm gonna go with Tully. It's hard not to give it to Tully, isn't it? Like he seems to win it every time. MVP. Uh, so I'm actually going with Tully, the old standby <laughs> for uh, for MVP. Uh, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.